Isaiah chapter 63. Love for you to turn in your Bibles there. Isaiah 63. And if you do not have a Bible with you, there's Bibles around you all over the place, uh, underneath the seatbacks in front of you, and also in the back, there's some Bibles available as well. Isaiah chapter 63, and once again, if you do not have a Bible or know someone that needs a Bible, take one of those and use it as a gift to give to them. We talk a lot around here about sharing our faith, about letting people know that Christ loves them and has a plan for them, he has a plan for all of us, and we also know that there's a coming judgment that's, that's looming out there, and it should intensify our desire to, to share the gospel with people, to share truth with them. One of the things that our church is involved in quite a bit, and obviously some of that is because I lead Child Evangelism Fellowship also for California, is... Uh, reaching children for Christ. And I don't know if any of you have been to the LA County Fair right now, if you've been out there this year. And we've got Child Evangelism Fellowship has this booth that's out there. And it's set up like the interior of a castle. And it's got uh, what we call the wordless book colors on the sides that explain our need for salvation through those colors. It was an original uh, thing that Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon first came up with, and then it's been added to, uh, Amy Carmichael added some colors to it, and then a Child Evangelism, Evangelism Fellowship added a, a, another color to it about 85 years ago, and that has been used ever since. And we share this little multicolored story with uh, anyone that comes in uh, to this booth and we share the Bible verses with them and share the story and it's pretty cool what happens. And what's neat is you have these groups of people that come in that volunteer every single day. So there's people out there right now, the fair is open, I believe last 10 minutes, 10 minutes ago. So there's a group of five people that are out there right now that are manning this booth and inviting children, their parents, whoever they want, whoever wants to come in and hear the gospel message because they have inside them the understanding of this intensity of needing to get the gospel out and share God's word. And you never know how it's going to go. You never, there's, there's, Obviously, when you're out in the public like that, there's going to be people that kind of, like what I would say, throw rocks at you a little bit and uh, go, well, how dare you be here and how dare you, you should just keep your ideas to yourself and in, in your church and blah, 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 blah. Well, every year I'm reminded why we do that fair and other fairs. So there's a whole, this weekend, there's been people there, next weekend is the last weekend of the fair. And before yesterday, before this weekend of the fair, there had been over 700 people that had gone through that story uh, at the fair booth uh, this year. 700 people. And what's even more amazing to me is 223 people have accepted the Lord at that fair booth this year. Isn't that wild to think about that? Just the simple message of the gospel. 
not doctored up in any sort of way to make it seem like bigger or, you know, splashier or fog lights and mirrors or anything like that, like that. Just people sharing life in the gospel with these kids. And what was fun is I, I was sitting uh, at a, a meeting the other day and I was getting these, you know, reports coming in and all this type of stuff. And there was this picture that came in and I, I'm not going to show it right now because these TV screens are a little small to really see the detail of it. But what was so cool is, is the, the person took a picture of the interior of, of the fair booth and it was full of junior hires and high schoolers. And none of them spoke English. But in God's providence, the person that was running the booth that hour spoke Spanish like they did. And every single one of those teens accepted Christ. And, and I know how we do those things because I lead it. It's not just if you want to accept Christ, raise your hand type of thing. This is, we explain very clearly the steps of what it means to accept Christ. And, and do you believe this? And do you understand? And it's, it's not what we would call easy believism. This is making sure people understand the need for Christ. And I say all of that to you for a few reasons. One, our church, that's our main outreach ministry. We provide all of the offices and the training thing for the whole state here on our campus. And uh, they come here for training. They come here for, for all of that. And uh, the whole state office is over in one of the portables over here. And so it's pretty cool that we, that, that's, that's us. That's us. Another part of it that I wanted to make sure we understand is in Isaiah 63 here, we have to remember that judgment is coming. The judgment day is coming. Now, as we sang earlier, way earlier this morning, you know, on that day when Jesus comes, what, what's in it for those who are believers? Well, we're going to be rejoicing. We are, we are all in. We're all excited about the fact that Christ is returning. And to us, he is the lamb. But to those who do not know him, he's the lion. And Isaiah paints that picture for us. God's coming wrath is real, everyone. The Bible warns us of judgment day. Malachi wrote, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. That's Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. John the Baptist said this, he spoke of the need to, in Luke 3, 7, flee, flee from the coming wrath. Paul said to those who did not know the Lord, who were not repentant of their sins, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
in Romans chapter 2. Judgment day is coming. It's a sure thing. And as we read these verses this morning and study them and unpack them, this chapter gives a clear picture of that and also gives us a lesson on, in light of that, how do we pray? How do we pray in light of God's coming wrath? Well, I think, first of all, we need to feel the weight of the vision that we're about to read. We need to feel the weight of God's wrath. If you're like many other people in the world, you woke up even this morning and you take a little glance at what's just going on in the world. And it's pretty consistent what's going on in the world. Yuck. Just, you feel yucky. You feel sad. And as a believer, we need to feel it. We do need to feel that. The wars and the rumors of wars. And, and as we search our hearts and our lives, we need to remember how important, once again, it is to repent of sin. It is important for us to remember, am I ready? Am I ready for the coming day of judgment? Am I prepared through Christ for that day? And I need to remember, as Isaiah mentions to us here, as we look at this going forward, I am called, me, you, those of us who are Christians, we are called to pray for this world. right? And let's not leave it in just a general sense. Every single one of us in this room can think of within probably one second or less people that we know that do not know the Lord, right? And, and judgment day is coming. We're called to pray for them. Uh, we don't want anyone to be involved in what's coming with the wrath side of this. And Isaiah, in the first six verses, it's, it's really intense if you really understand what Isaiah is saying here. He looks ahead to this day of wrath. And this, this, this section really is easy to, to put into three different categories in this chapter. You've got Isaiah looking ahead to the day of wrath, and then you've got Isaiah looking back in remembrance of, of the fact that God has done wonderful things for them, thus remembering that there's promise for future hope. And then he ends this with a prayer. And it's really what we need to be doing ourselves. We need to be looking forward. We need to look back at what he's done and remember the glories of what he's done and what he will do then and pray. 
It's a pretty easy outline. Join me as you read, as I speak out loud, starting in verse 1 of chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your clothing red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine, trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I brought down their life blood to the earth. Okay, if you read that correctly, who, who's the one that's being quoted? It's Christ. You know, Isaiah's looking ahead and he sees Christ returning from the battle, essentially, of Armageddon and the climaxes of the day of the Lord that we can read in Revelation 19. Edom is named here as a representative of the nations that have oppressed the Jewish people. Basra was the main city, one of the main cities. And it's interesting, the name of that city means something that matches what's in here. Grape gathering. And it's significant since the image here is that of a wine press. And the name Edom means red. Nickname for Esau in Genesis 25. The ancient wine press was large. It's a hollowed rock in which the grapes were, were put for the people to tread on them, much different than the I Love Lucy episode <laughs> that many of you may know is still one of the most classic things ever on TV. The juice would run out a hole of a hole in the rock and it was then caught into these vessels. And, and as people crushed the grapes and they're stomping, the, the grape juice would splash on their garments. Jesus' garments were dyed with 
blood as the result of the victory over his enemies in Revelation 19.13. When Jesus came to earth the first time, it was to inaugurate the acceptable year of the Lord, as we had read in Isaiah 61 verse 2 and in Luke 4:19 when he came when he comes the second time as we see here it is to be the climax of the day of the vengeance of our God as we see in verse 4 the enemy will be crushed like grapes forced to drink their own blood from the cup of God's wrath yeah you start thinking about this in the imagery of what it's really about and what's really going to happen. And these, Im- these images do not appeal to us as Jesus does that. What, what, you know, what does the world now try to tell us Jesus is totally like? He, he's, he's loving. And the answer is Yes. He's totally loving. He's perfect in love. And we'll get to that. But that's it. It stops there, right? That's, that's what the world wants us to know. And, and really, they make Jesus to be a, a colossal wimp. What does Isaiah picture here? Yeah, this is... This is This is bad. These images do not appeal to sophisticated people today. The Jewish people of that day understood them completely because of the experience with wine presses and understanding that's what Jesus is going to do with his enemies. But that's, that's the picture we see in the book of Revelation as well. And in the earlier centuries of the church, I really think many of those writers post-Bible really kind of understood that, yeah, there's, there's, there's two camps. You know, in the coming day of judgment, what did I say? For on that day, for those of us who are believers, on that day, there's rejoicing. The other camp on that day is death, and it's gruesome. Augustine saw it this way. He saw the human race divided into the city of God and the city of man. The city of God, everyone who loves God, even to the extent of contempt toward self. The city of man is everyone who loves self, even to the extent of contempt towards God. Each one lives in one city or the other. And our loyalty stands out in the way that we live. Are we loyal to the city of man? Are we loyal to the city of God? And we see Jesus in this vision of the Savior as something that the world does not share this side of the story much. The Apostle John Similar vision, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes 
are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will treat, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. See, it's the exact same picture. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. City of man, city of God, lamb, lion. If you look at verses 3, if you look at verse 6, you see Isaiah rolling out a vocabulary that has these words that, that many do not like to associate with our Lord, and that is of anger and of wrath. They, they don't like to associate that word in, in verse 4 of vengeance. Jesus, Jesus is pure. He's holy. He's just. And he's not safe if you're not in his city. He's totally good, but he will totally destroy evil. Does that make sense? His year of redemption, as we see here, has come. He's out to rid the whole world of every last particle of human evil. You and I better be on which side? Yeah, thank you. And we can be, and he wants us to be. He, he is, what does it say there? He's mighty to save in verse 1. He, he wants to be mighty to save for you and me. But as we see in the New Testament, we must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So there's two things everyone needs to understand about the wrath of the lamb as we see here. One is this, if the lamb is angry with you, there's really only one reason he's angry. You deserve it. Because see, the lamb of God is gentle and, and lowly in heart in Matthew 11, verse 29. So if the lamb is angry with you, it's only because you've rejected him, his love, his tenderness, his redemption. The reason for the wrath of the lamb, the essential sin that will splatter the blood on his robe at the second coming that, that happens because the rejection of his love. And so the answer is, let the lamb love you. Accept him. Believe in him. And also, for those of us who are believers, it, do you ever get, like I said, we, we, we 
flip our tablets open or we look at our phone and we get the news feed, I'd strongly suggest just deleting that <laughs> sometimes. But there's, I mentioned this to Daniel this morning, one, one of the, the raging areas of our world is the fights that happen in twi on Twitter. And people love fighting with each other on Twitter. And I, I really, I, I think it'd be really good for people to remember Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're supposed to act differently. If our, if our enemy's hungry, what do we do? Feed them. If our enemy's thirsty, what do we do? Give them something to drink in Jesus' name. And the reason that that's all there is it is so easy to be overcome by evil. Isn't it? And then we start feeling like, <laughs> I, I am going to avenge Scott's wrath. <laughs> Scott's wrath really means nothing to anyone else. <laughs> Ooh, danger, Scott's upset. <laughs> Let the lamb be the lion. Let, let Jesus be the lion. And that, that's what I, Isaiah is getting at this fact. All, the Messiah's coming, and he's going to take care of all the evil. Just, just know that. Isaiah's saying that. And he says, then we need to look back then. So this is a little longer section, but I'm going to read it through and just, just see what he says here. We need to remember then the loving kindness of God. Verse 7, I shall bring to remembrance the loving kindness of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all the ways that Yahweh has dealt bountifully with us, and the abundant goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has dealt bountifully to them, according to his compassion, and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. And he said, surely they are my people. Sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their distress, he was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the ancient days. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the ancient days of Moses. There's some questions that happen here in verse 11. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who split the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like the horses in the wilderness, 
They did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. What Isaiah does here is he goes back and looks at what God has done for Israel. He praises God for his loving kindness and and his goodness, for the love that he bestowed on them. Uh, God even identified with their sufferings. We, We read that earlier in our reading of scripture together in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where he, you know, he spreads his wings and covers them, carries them through, guides them. And he does that today. Amen. First Peter 5, 7, cast how much of your anxiety on him? Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And we see, like I said there in verse 11, going into verse 12, the Jewish people asks, they ask these questions, where's our God who did wonders for his people? Why is he not working on our behalf? Uh, Twice you have these questions, and it's the question of every generation. They're important questions. The most important questions in life are always God questions. If if you see yourself as you are before Christ, you would see yourself, what, as helpless, guilty, needing an ally. And so you ask the question, who is the ally? Where is he? And you know what? You need to stop everything else until you find the answer to that question because you will just be going all over the place and isn't that what we see with people in their lives they go everywhere because they haven't got that question answered where is he nothing else matters where is he where is he who led his people in order to make a glorious name for himself Other generations experience that as well. It's kind of like the prodigal son coming to his senses. What did the prodigal son do? He's like, he's at the end of everything and he goes, oh, my father. I will turn to him. You see, what happened is he got there and he had to ask the question. He's looking around in the pigsty and going, okay, where, where is he? He's looking in total honesty, admitting everything right down to the details. And, and just as a side note here, everyone, so just listen up. Side note, Scott's going off onto... Another track here. As, as a kid, I, I was brought up in, in a background of churches that uh, basically I was taught that the minute you sinned, you were once again outside of God's grace. Very terrible type of way to live a Christian life. <laughs> When you think about it, 
And so I would pray at the end of every night, and God, forgive me of all of the other sins that I can't remember because I know if I don't ask for forgiveness of those sins, I'm going to hell, even though I believe in you and I've trusted in you. And, all right, so just as a side note, ain't wrong, incorrect theology, bad Scott. Bad people that taught me that. Because there's really not true repentance and generalities. Oh, God, forgive me for all the sins I don't remember and whatever. You know, we're forgiven when we turn to him. But if we, we don't grow. We don't increase our level of sanctification until we get down and dirty in the details of what needs to change in our life. Amen? No generalities. No generalities. Specifics. And what I, why I'm saying that is when we go to our Father with that kind of trust, trust on the specifics, while we were still a long way off, every one of us is a long way off at some point. While we were still a long way off, what does the Father do when we repent? He runs to us, he embraces us, he gives us that kiss, and he says, you are mine. That is the God of loving kindness and the God of mercy. And when we go into repentance in our lives, our experience of God who is very complex, our ways are not his ways. we do understand then the steadfast love through the blood of the Lamb. And Isaiah is having them look back to see, oh no, God's protecting. God's making sure that you're getting where you're supposed to be. But he's also, he's disciplining. He's, he's also taking those opportunities to being restrained towards you, as it goes further here to say in this prayer. We have a vision then of what is going to come in the judgment of God that we don't, we should, we should want no one to go through that. We should want everyone to accept Christ. Amen? Except for that, per, no, just, <laughs> no, everyone. And then our prophet looks up. He looks forward, he looks back, and then he looks up. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The tumults within you and your compassion are restrained towards me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. 
Why, O Yahweh, do you cause us to stray from your ways and stiffen our hearts from fearing you? Return for the sake of your slaves, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people possess your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. This prayer is interesting because the Hebrew words translated in in verse 12 there, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 64 later in verse 12, uh, are something that reappears from this first part in the restrain towards me thing. Um, Restrain yourself is what is happening here. God has restrained himself. And this whole prayer is for God to visit us without holding himself back. There God is. He is in his holy and beautifully heavenly palace. We're down here in our junk. What's the answer? And it's not more of us. The answer is only more of God. Don't restrain yourself, but he has restrained. If you, if you go back to the part of uh, verse 15, uh, the ESV says it probably in a way that in, instead of tumults and, and things like that, the stirring of your inner parts is another, another translation of that. And it's really that the deep feelings that God has for us God feels for us deeply, not superficially, not sporadically, but he withholds from us the experience of his love at times. He's totally committed to us, but the work of Christ on the cross is finished. The Holy Spirit has come. The triune God never changes. He never leaves us, per se, But our experience with him does change, and he is the one who changes it. And that's why we pray. And there's a difference between doing life and doing church and all these different things in your own power. And then there's a difference when you're entering into the presence of God. God wants to teach us. This is a good prayer. God himself gave us this prayer. So he's asking us to ask him. He's telling us, ask me why I'm restraining. This isn't about doubting God. We're asking God, where's the passion and the power and the experience down here? Where is the zeal and your might being demonstrated in our generation? Have you ever wondered that? Have you gone, God, what? It was really cool for those people to be a part of, like, let's say, the Reformation time frame 500 plus years ago. It'd be really cool if that would, like, happen again. Where is that, God? And I, I... I see that here. If you, if you look at verse 16, for you are our father through, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, our father, our redeemer, for, uh, for your name is old. 
if, if it's like this. I want you to picture this just for a minute as we, we are kind of rounding the last corner here. If, if the ancient patriarchs could get into a time machine and hit the fast-forward button and reappear among the people of God at Isaiah's time, what Isaiah is getting at is that Abraham and Israel would look at them and say, who in the world are you people? You have drifted. You have become less than what God has called us to be. You need renewal. See, this is the point. Every generation needs renewal. Every generation needs to rediscover Christ's worth. We need to rediscover what it means to live flat out for Jesus. Amen? It's like this. I just said something about the Reformation time period. Imagine a few of those guys just like popped in today, time machine, popped in. You know what would happen? The exact same thing. If they, if they popped into the churches in our area today, in our nation, they'd go, who are you guys? Step up. We were getting burned at the stake. We were telling people. We were living all out for this. Because they prayed these prayers. But you know what? We don't need the patriarchs. We don't need the reformers. We need the redeemer. God is our Father. God is our Redeemer. No matter how far you have drifted, God's church has drifted, He still, as we see here, identifies with us, loves us more than anything. And yes, there are hearts that are hardened, and God is, plays a part in that, as we see in verse 17. As we see in John 12 verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, he's hardened their hearts, least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and heal them. When we wander from God, that doesn't put God in a helpless position and wondering what to do next. If we wander from his ways, God teaches us a lesson. How many times has God handed you over to the sin that you have created a huge hole for yourself in. <laughs> and you're like, okay, God, get it. Please get me out. God teaches us lessons by handing us over to the power of the sins that we commit. And I think that is very important for us to remember don't fool around with sin. Because there may be times when you feel like, well, I'll just fool around with sin and then I'll just jump back out of it. And what if God's going to get you there for a while and you're going to be stuck? Yeah. 
See, sin is a power beyond our control, actually. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? Is a slave to sin. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And when you find yourself hardened with self-pity and maybe even blaming God about that, the one thing that we do need to remember is we need to pray. Pray for God to return to us. Psalm 90, verse 13, return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. All of these things paint a picture that we are completely dependent on God. When we wander from his ways and we no longer fear him, our hope cannot be in ourselves because there's no hope at all. Our hope is that in his mercy, God redeems us. It's an interesting section of scripture. Look forward, look back, look up. A couple of words of application here and then we're heading for the finish line. I think... We, need, we do ourselves well if we immerse ourselves in chapters and verses like this every once in a while and remember that there is a coming wrath of God and not shrink back from that. I think when the writers in the New Testament and the preachers in the New Testament say things like, you know, there's going to be people that just tickle people's ears. Part of that is what we've been looking at in Second Peter. Is that this, this false teaching that Jesus isn't going to come back. Because it's really tough to think about some of this. And I would be tickling your ears if we skipped Isaiah 63, which I want you to know, oddly enough, when I looked online at a lot of different sermons that are out there on Isaiah, I think I found like three on Isaiah 63. People don't preach this thing. Maybe a verse or two from it. Well, why? Well, it's tough because we want to skip 63 and get to the happy, happy, joy, joy things. But if I don't tell people the truth, there's no joy. And if you're a believer here this morning, you know this is true, this coming wrath. We need to tremble at it. We need to esteem God and tremble at his word. It's serious stuff. But we should never shrink back from it. Don't be ashamed of it. Oh, I can't talk about God's wrath. It's true. We mention this all the time, but 
when you actually care for someone and something is about to go wrong or they do something that's going to get them to hurt them, you, you usually will do whatever you can to, if you really care about them, to stop it, to stop it from happening. Jenny, myself, Micah, and Grace were in a car on Friday going to God's sport, baseball. (laughs) And we're going through a street, I mean, we were just going through a side street because the traffic was awful. I mean, so that's every moment. But we're going through the side street And all of a sudden, Micah behind me yells, Stop! And and the reason he yelled that was a person ran the red light and was coming right at us. And I was looking forward, he was looking to the side. Am I happy that he was looking to the side? Yes. Why would he yell that? Well, other than self-protection... Maybe it also had to do with the fact he cared about everyone else in the car. If someone is going to touch the oven when they're two years old and it's red hot, do you just sit back and, and, you, and you go, oh, well, that'll teach them. <laughs> no, in that case, you don't shrink back, you, you, you tell them. We need to warn people. We need to plead with sinners to repent in the light of what's happening in this world. Do we, should we ever be the people that run away from tough discussions about things like gender and different stuff like that? No. Because if we really care for people, We share. We share God's truth. And I think you see that with Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. (laughs) I love it when when Luke just gets to points in his writing where he's like, "I, I can't write the rest of this. So he says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We we need to be pleading with people. We need to be pleading with people. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. I, I love this. We need to be say say we need to be saying this to people. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon him. That's that's why we plead with people in light of that. And then begin maybe even this afternoon, you look forward to what the future is for people. You look back on what Christ has done for us 
and then you, you intercede, which is what Isaiah did. You pray. Start praying today for people that don't know the Lord. And I know sometimes it's like, Scott, I, I've been praying for years. Keep praying. Keep praying. Give yourself no rest. Give God no rest. I mean, I love it when, you know, you see, well, why did he answer the prayer? Because he kept knocking on the door. But it's just that mentality of give God no rest. He wants to hear our prayers. He wants to intercede in the light of these things. Intercede for people you know that are lost in light of the things that you know are coming. And in light of the things that you know he has done. Will you take up that challenge? Because I think that is the challenge that I take away from Isaiah 63. I look forward, I look back, I look up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this.